trial helm, it would appear, when you first met the prisoner in Hamburg, you lied to him about your marital status? I wanted to get out of Germany, so... You lied, did you not? Just yes or no, please. Yes. Thank you. And subsequently, in arranging the marriage, you lied to the authorities? I um, did not tell the truth to the authorities. You lied to them? Yes. And in the ceremony of marriage itself, when you swore to love and to honor and to cherish your husband, that too was a lie? Yes. And when the police questioned you about this wretched man who believed himself married and loved, you told them? I told them what Leonard wanted me to say. You told them that he was at home with you at 25 minutes past nine, and now you say that that was a lie? Yes, a lie. And when you said that he had accidentally cut his wrist, again you lied? Yes! And now today you've told us a new story entirely. The question is, Frau Helm, were you lying then? Are you lying now? Or are you not, in fact, a chronic and habitual liar? Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to another episode of 15-Minute Film Fanatics, the show where two guys watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. Before we begin, we want to thank people for subscribing to the show so far on YouTube. Thank you for following us wherever you get your podcasts. Keep the requests coming. So... Today, Mike, how excited are you about today's movie? This is one of my favorite movies. This is a Mike pick. Today we're doing Witness for the Prosecution, the 1957 masterpiece. Yeah, I said it. Directed by Billy Wilder, written by Wilder and uh, Harry Kurnitz, based upon the Agatha Christie short story that she then turned into a play. Now, of course, as always, there are spoilers. But if you haven't seen Witness for the Prosecution, right, Mike, the first thing is, what are you waiting for? You got to go watch it right now. Hit pause right now. Go watch the movie and then come back and hear us talk about it. So in part one, we always talk about our overall take on the movie or what we like about it. Mike, go. Anything of Agatha Christie's that survives to get adapted into some other form typically is just bound like clockwork. And this movie is beautiful in that it fell into the hands of Billy Wilder, who I think has a very a similar aesthetic to her. Right. Billy Wilder movies are tight. They're taught everything is causal and uh, mostly everything is funny. So I think that the charm of Charles Lawton, I think Agatha Christie having fun with her own source material. I mean, that that's a beautiful pairing right there. And it's not the first pairing you think of. Everybody thinks of Charles Lawton and Marlena Dietrich uh, going face to face, which is unbelievably brilliant. I think that this movie is just packed with people who were supposed to be in movies. Charles Lawton, I could not imagine him doing anything else. Marlena Dietrich was genetically designed in a lab somewhere to be in movies. Tyrone Powers was one of the great action stars of the previous generation. Just there's so much talent in this movie. And I can't believe still how well it flows. It, how how long does it feel to you? Uh, 62 seconds. Yeah, it's it's almost two hours long, but it yeah. does not. It does no. not feel it. It feels like one of the shortest movies I've ever seen. And it. It has this beautiful quality, beautiful rewatchable quality where no matter what I know is going to happen in any given scene, the performances are so good that it never loses any of its luster or charm. This must be the 25th or 26th time I've seen this movie and I love it every time. 
That is such a tiny genre, a rewatchable murder mystery, not a rewatchable thriller, right? Or a rewatchable crime movie. Like you could watch crime movies over and over. We've seen Heat a thousand times, right? But to go into this knowing that the triple surprise at the end and still be engaged and still find things to look at and still be impressed by the performances every single time, like that's what, that's Billy Wilder's fingerprints all over it. Yeah, and I I also think that the combination of Billy Wilder and Agatha Christie, they, they've they built what feels like a genre, but is one movie. It it feels like Wilfred is in a thousand movies and, and you know him and you love him like you like someone like Sherlock Holmes. Like but Sherlock it was, Holmes. It was as though you love Sherlock Holmes, but Arthur Conan Doyle had only written The Hound of the Baskervilles. And you say, what is this quality? Why do I love this person so much? You think of all the bad series there are out there, and you're and and of course you regret like, well, why didn't they make? Why didn't Billy Wilder get them together and do six more of these? Like, strike while the iron was hot, and maybe that would have uh, diminished that what made this one feel so special. But I love how this movie, like you said about the performances, and let's also pause here and talk about one thing we did cheat on is that Mike and I texted each other that the species lost something in not getting Charles Lawton to play Samuel Johnson. I, I don't know what is responsible for that oversight, but it's one of the worst oversights in the history of cinema. Yeah. Nobody was nobody was more born to play Samuel Johnson than Charles yeah. Lawton. Did they just walk around and the little plot of the movie would be him walking around saying Johnsonian things. But, but, but I think we have the second best version of that here because he does play a version of Johnson. I think that Charles Lawton as the lovable curmudgeon works really really well here and i love i love the fact that he truly is a lovable curmudgeon because people are called that in real life like people you know but they're usually just jerks <laughs> like they're usually not lovable curmudgeon but here you know say things like you know the, the barrister is on the banister and like all the banter with his real life wife elsa lanchester like when they're in the taxi and stuff and uh you know you know i'm surprised that women's hats don't cause more don't provoke more murders. Like he does have this Johnsonian air about him, this larger than life figure who walks around making comments that are funny. And he's kind of grouchy, but underneath that grouchiness, like he wants to do the right thing. One thing that this film doesn't get enough credit for is how well it dramatizes little relationships between Wilfred and other characters. There's so much implied history uh, with his butler, with his staff, with the other barristers uh, that he knows, with the solicitor who comes to the house for the first time. There's so much implied dialogue. And one of the reasons that directors don't do that is they're afraid that they'll lose their audience. They're afraid that the audience won't be able to keep up. But if you pull that off, what you get is a whole network of implied history as though you're overhearing conversations by real people, which is where I think the tonal quality of the whole movie comes from. Yeah, and the reason they also won't do things like when he comes back from the hospital and they're all waiting and they're like, can I read you the poem? And he's like, no. And then like, they're like, oh, you're back to your old self. Like, like, I think a lesser director or a director without the imagination of Billy Wilder would have cut that because they think like, well, that's not what the audience wants. Like the audience wants the court, they want the court scenes, they want the murder, they want all that stuff. So I'm going to cut all that. But Billy Wilder is so smart by leaving all that stuff in there with the nurse and, and the heart attack story and and um, all the jokes about the, the George Costanza Stairmaster lift thing that when you get to the end, like you are so much on his side and you're so emotionally invested because you want Wilfred to figure it out. Well, that too, but there's something that makes the scenes work, which is how bad Wilfred wants a cigar, for example, right? So that, so what becomes secondary is the audience's drive to get information and they structure it around his need for first 
to, to, to be away from the nurse, then to get a cigar, then they need a match. And so basically you have a three act structure in one scene where a character wants one thing. And then you, you're like, wait, it isn't somebody being deposed right now, but <laughs> yeah. you, you forget because he's smoking the cigar and he finally gets what he wants. Yeah. And of course, all his jokes, like the cigar and the thermos with the brandy in it, like, and, and, uh, you know, I can't give you the cigar. It would constitute a bribe. All of his jokes and lies are funny, but of course, in, and the bigger picture, all of the lies and the, and the duplicity is, is a matter of life and death. Uh, my favorite part for no particular reason, and I don't have a good thought about this is when the box of Bermuda shorts comes. I'm not sure why, but I laugh. So that's not your moment. No, that's not your moment. Okay. Well, in part two, we'll talk about our moments. Welcome back. So, of course, in part two, we talk about key moments or our favorite scenes. Dan, I think yours is early, you said. Yeah, all I told you is that it's early and it's really, really early. It's literally the beginning of the movie. Now, let me set this up. The great thing about this film, of course, is that it takes an idea, which we're going to actually do in a couple of weeks when we talk about The Wrong Man, right? Which I know you've seen, right? You've seen The Wrong Man. Yes. Lesser known Hitchcock film, Henry Fonda, stuck into this this terrible trial for something he didn't do. You're completely on his side. Now, movies work that way. That's like The Fugitive or Come to Think of It, Presumed Innocent, right? Also with Harrison Ford, right? So the, the trick of the movie is what if Richard Kimball really did kill his wife like you know you know what if what if at the end of the wrong man henry fonda is revealed to be the actual the actual uh hold up man well it works that way and that of course is the is the big twist one of the twists at the end but i think what's great about the film works long before that is that the first thing you hear in the movie is the bailiff saying like hear ye hear ye you know give us your attention and and the court is called to order now that invites you into this world where you are a juror Right. You're asked to be a juror. That's the fun of the movie. This is our third courtroom movie, right? We've done the verdict. We've done anatomy of a murder, right? We've done other movies with trials, but where the whole action is here, the whole second hour, right? So you're you're drawn in. And it occurred to me that the one of the great things about this movie is that it articulates what we do in so many other movies. Because in basically every movie, we're on the jury, right? In every movie you watch, worth watching a lot of times, you're asked to make judgments, right? So, you know, The Godfather, you have to judge what Michael has done at the end. And, you know, you have to judge his lie to his sister and, and to his wife. You know, um, I'm thinking of other movies like, uh, you know, you can pick anyone. You have to judge um, in Heat, right? You know, is 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 Al Pacino doing the right thing by giving more, more rope to Robert De Niro and things? Um, and I think that we're constantly being manipulated when we watch movies. And here we get manipulated in, in, in a wonderful, wonderful way, because our job is to come to a decision. Our job is to render a judgment and come to a finding. And it's almost like the writers and the actors, you know, and the director are all the lawyers. And they're all kind of like affecting our judgment and giving us pieces of information that we as the jurors are supposed to kind of make sense of. And then we render our verdict. And of course, in a jury, you say, we find the defendant. It's not, we never say in the legal system, the defendant is innocent. The defendant, we say, we find the defendant innocent. And some of the best movies are ones where we say, well, we find this person guilty or not guilty of that, but it's hard to say, right? And I think this movie plays upon that wonderfully. Yeah, and I I think to your earlier point, it has to do with something about the human mind and and the structure of judgment, which I think is anytime you parade things in front of me, right, I start to build a narrative around those things. And and so it's not just that you're invited to be a juror, it's that to be a juror at all, you sit stationary, and I'm going to parade things in front of you. And based on your judgment of the things that I parade in front of you or their relationship to one another, you'll build a story that will influence you. And I think that that's why pretty much every movie that that we love or that I think when we did 
David Mamet's writing of the verdict, we had similar comments to those that we do about, about Billy Wilder, which is that if you want to learn to make a movie, you could just watch this. You could treat this movie as the right. textbook because a courtroom movie will teach you how to do movies in general. And of course, you know, let's talk more about Billy Wilder. You know, we love the apartment, right? We love the apartment, right? So what in the apartment, yeah, what a genius, right? You're constantly asked to do what? To judge Jack Lemmon's actions, right? So when he decides at the end not to take the promotion and that surely, like, you you know, you're manipulated into judging that as a great thing. Like you're manipulated and, and it's wonderful. Like you're glad to be, like it's one time in your life when you, when you watch a movie, you're, you're blissfully manipulated. You know, you love that feeling. And also another point is that Marlena Dietrich's character and Tyrone's Tyrone Power's character, they know that too. And so that's why you said they put facts in front of you. That's why they make the, the letters on the blue paper to Max, because they know that they can manipulate a jury away from the question of, well, wait a minute, who did kill the old lady to, well, I'm not sure what happened, but I don't like her <laughs> and I'm going to judge her and I'm going to judge him as innocent because he's crying. Why are you doing this? I'm going to judge against her. And I'm going to forget that there's even like a dead woman. I'm going to, I don't care who that was. I just have to make that judgment. And I think the well, movie that, does that so well. That ties into my moment because when you're first introduced to Wilfred, part of the facts that you have is that he's a jerk. He'll kind of do anything to get what he wants. He's mean to other people, right? He's self-serving. And then when Tyrone Powers comes into his office and he starts to hear his story, he does a really interesting thing, which is that he puts his monocle in and he sits back and he shines the light in his face and yells at him and tries to get him to admit. Essentially, he he submits him to the same kind of pressure that you'd be that he'd be on the stand to see if he, as a defender, can break him and find out what the truth is which of course is an interesting thing to do if you're a defense attorney, right? Because it right. shouldn't matter. Right. It shouldn't matter whether or not you think he actually did it, but you find out very early on to Wilfred, it, it very much does matter yeah. because if he admits it or there's anything less than a full denial of what he did, then Wilfred's basically going to say, okay, I'm off to Bermuda or it's time for my nap. Mm -hmm. And that's a rare kind of beautiful moment of Wilford's own morality and in fact what he thinks of justice which is key to the third act unfolding right it's it's he comes off as very cynical he comes off as very self-serving and so you say well what's the organizing principle of this person's life and it's a commitment and love of justice and I think that that comes out in the monocle test that I always found that very moving yeah that's great which of course Marlena Dietrich passes also, she she is not phased by the monocle monocle test at all, and I love what you said too about his his moral center because of course that what does that do for the viewer? Right, we align with his moral. We center. align with him, right, and we align with him in his his capers against his his irritating nurse, right. But of course, we align with him on the bigger thing too. We align with him in funny things, but of course, on important things, which makes, as you said, the ending and his care about justice at the end so great. Right, and I mean, last word on the monocle test. Obviously, it doesn't work. Right, so, right. right. So, so one thing to say about it doesn't work because, and and I think that the the point of it not working is that Wilfred, no matter what you think of him, he's he's clever, he's brilliant, he's he has an, a mind like Agatha Christie's mind, right? right. Like his creator. But the interesting thing is, he cannot imagine a person like Tyrone Power who is telling himself, right? It's like, how do you get through a lie detector test? You tell yourself a set of alternative facts, right? Tyrone Powers is sitting there saying. I didn't kill the old lady. She set herself up and she had to die so that I can live. Right. And Marlene Dietrich is, is sitting there saying, 
um, like love washes everything clean, right? He saved me, so I have to save him. And it's it's obvious that Wilfred is unable to sink to a level where he would not pass the monocle test. Therefore, he believes in it. And that's why it works for him. Right. And that's also why it works for, that's why the movie works on us because no human being can watch us for the first time and say, yeah, I had the whole thing figured out. I, I knew that they were in cahoots the whole time because if they did, they'd be lying. They, you know what they would be? What's the line? You would be an inveterate and a pathological liar. <laughs> a, a chronic and habitual liar. Welcome back. So in part three, of course, we talk about the title, the ending, the key takeaways. There's a lot to talk about with the ending here. This yeah. is almost an episode unto itself. Nothing really happens in the ending of this movie. So I think we should just call it quits. Of course, the whole the whole movie exists in the ending. The whole movie leads up to the ending. And, and again, I just thought of this right here. How many movies have we seen and how many murder mysteries have we read where the mystery was so much better than the solution? It happens so all the time, right? It happens all the time. We're like, this is a great setup, you know? And then it really is just like one of the six characters. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe the sixth sense, you know, right. and a, a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and again. I don't like right. M. Night Shyamalan, but like that's, that's again, a tight construction, which makes right. the rest rewatchable somehow. Right. And of course I went on a Agatha Christie bender years ago and she wrote like 83 books and I must've read I, in my whole life. I must've read easily 50 of them. Right. But my problem is the first ones I read were The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Murder on the Orient Express, mm -hmm. um, The Pale Horse, The ABC Murders. And those and those are all ones where the ending is so far out and it like toys with the conventions of the novel that you'd never see it coming. A lot of them, though, are really it really was, um, you know, Mike in the library with, with the wrench. But this movie, the, my point is that the payoff really does work. It's worth all the time you put into it. Now, this movie also ends with two things that are usually very irritating in movies that I know irritate you as well, but they're not irritating here. They're actually excellent here. The first is the talking killer, right? So they come out, if you're Tyrone Power or Marlena Dietrich, we find Leonard Vole innocent. Taxi, like you are out of there so fast. Let's go, let's get that money, right? But he can't. they can't stop bragging about what they've done. Now that's because it turns out that Tyrone Power is the opposite personality that he had. So the talking killer thing works wonderfully. The second thing that annoys you and, and me in movies all the time that works beautifully here, because it has to, are the multiple endings. Mm -hmm. And I think movies turn this way. I think Fatal Attraction is when movies started doing this, where you think Glenn Close is dead and then she jumps out of the bathtub. So now we know that every time a movie's over, it's got to end again. And you, of course, have a special pet peeve in your heart for post-credit scenes as well, right? And and honestly, uh, I'll, I will say, yes, I give this movie a pass, but it ends more times than Return of the King. <laughs> It does. And but and it's wonderful endings, right? It, you know, wonderful endings. So, you know, you go through the endings, right? The whole thing of him figuring out that the finding the buying the letters and then reading them in court to prove Tyrone is that's that's ending number one. Right. Then we find out that she wrote them as fakes and, and they were in cahoots. That's ending number two. Right. Then that this woman who's an extra in the balcony scene turns out to be the brunette at the travel agency and comes down and Tyrone Power's got this new flame. That's ending number three. She kills him, ending four. He says he'll take her case and wear his wig again, ending five. It, it's so great how so much happens and how it's delivered to you so well. And we could talk about the morality and, and things of why he takes her case in a minute, but I talk about structurally. I mean, this is like a this is like solving a Rubik's Cube, which I have never done in my life, and putting it down and saying, there you go. 
I, having her on the balcony the whole time is just the piece de resistance that she's that she's been in plain sight the whole time. That's and him bragging. Even, That's Billy Wilder bragging. Yes, I, I was going to say when you watch the movie the fifth or sixth time, they really they describe her in detail, and then they cut to her, and then they cut back away from her, uh, which is brilliant. I I love it. So, what's your take on the ending? Um, I mean, the the ending is great. It's not, but somehow for a murder mystery, it's it's really not my. It's not my favorite part. There's just, there's so many beautiful, brilliant scenes. My favorite part is when Christine Helm has her breakdown. And of course it's Marlena Dietrich acting as Christine Helm, acting as Christine Vole, you know, and acting and pretending to have a breakdown when in fact she's the puppet master the whole time, right? She she knows that what he's going to, that what he's going to do is trick her into describing her own notepaper. So the first thing she says is those are not my letters. And she describes her paper and he says, like these, you know, and, and of course, when you watch it, you think that's the moment. Right. That's it. Right? This is the, oh, right. And so the whole film is actually based on you knowing the structure of other murder mysteries. Essentially, it's it's Agatha Christie playing on the idea that you already know what happens in a murder mystery because she wrote right. like 80 of them, like you right. said, and she's going to trick you. And Billy Wilder doing the same thing. He says, I know you've seen a movie like this before. So now I'm going to now I'm going to fool you. I mean. The most interesting thing is that th neither of those is the real ending of this film. The real ending of this film is the disclaimer at the end that warns you not to tell your friends and relatives how a uh, witness to, for the prosecution ends because you'll spoil it for them, which uh, is wonderfully out of date, but also not true. Uh, I could describe it for you right now, but you will be just as charmed by Wilfred as he's riding in the taxi cab as, as I would have been. Yeah. You'll be just as charmed, but you would hate to have known this the first time you watch it. I mean, the first time you watch this movie and that happens, it's like your whole conception of the universe is shaken because I think like you said, like you're like Marlena Dietrich, like she thinks she's in control of what's happening at the end. And then, and so do you, you think you figured out the movie you're in control. Like you're the jury who's come to the right decision. And then she says, no, you haven't. But then of course it's all swapped on her and Tyrone Power says, now I'm in control because I have the travel agent brunette. And then she says, well, actually you're not in control because I'm going to kill you. So it's these people fighting for control. But also it goes back to what you said before about um, Charles Lawton's judgment, right? When he says at the end, you know, he says, there's something not right about this. That's again, you talked about the brunette in the balcony as like Billy Wilder showing off, like she's described. We see her and we're sitting there like, Duh. we can't put two and two together, right? Well, another one is the movies, the, the case is over. We think the big aha moment are the blue... The, is the blue stationary and then Charles Lawton starts saying there's something wrong it's too symmetrical it's too symmetrical that's like Billy Wilder putting and then like the music doesn't rise yet and you look at your watch and you're like wait a minute this says has, there's 10 more minutes of this thing the, the credits can't be 10 minutes long he's like no no and then like, we saved it from the gallows he's like but there's a banana peel too close to the gallows and it's Billy Wilder saying go ahead I, like I'll wait I'll wait. And then you wait and you could never see it coming but I think it goes back to what you said before about Wilfred's moral sense because Elsa Lanchester says she killed him and he says she executed him. And he tells you as a lawyer, as a he tells you as a barrister, how you as a juror are supposed to regard that. You're not supposed to regard that as a murder. You're supposed to regard it as an execution. And again, there's a, there's a moment when he tells the jury that she's already forsaken so many oaths that he's surprised that the testament did not leap from her hand when she was sworn in, right? That's the moral sense that, leads him to be fooled he's not he's not wicked enough right to he can't imagine it in that 
it right in other people's wickedness to the same extent. Yeah. He knows that people sometimes murder people and he's been involved with that, but he thinks he knows why people murder other people. But at the same time, that's what leads him to say that he, Leonard was executed because essentially sometimes you get what's coming around, but sometimes you are what's coming around. Yeah. And which is why, of course, in witness for the prosecution too, colon, the next chapter, it's him, of course, taking Marlena Dietrich's case. And you wonder if he was able to, you think he got her acquitted? I, I'm sure he got her acquitted. That's that's good to imagine out there in the unmade movie. So thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Witness for the Prosecution. Please follow us where you get your podcasts. Look us up on Twitter at 15MIN Film. And also find us where, Mike? On Letterboxd. On Letterboxd, which, as Mike said, is the one social, the best social media thing for people who like the same stuff. So keep the requests coming. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>